Welcome back to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Today's show was recorded live from Alts LA in partnership with Kaya. Kaya is the leading global professional body dedicated to alternative investment credential programs. On this episode, we speak with Daniel Joy, where he oversees infrastructure investing at LA Sarah, the $58 billion Los Angeles County Employee Retirement Association. Prior to moving back to Los Angeles and joining La Sarah, Daniel worked in London for Morgan Stanley, Vitol, and BP with a focus on energy trading and investing. He started his career in the French Navy as a gunnery officer, where he navigated the seven seas and participated in Operation Enduring Freedom. He holds a master's in engineering from L'Ecole Navale, the French Naval Academy, and an MBA with honors from Wharton. Thanks, Daniel, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast to share your views and knowledge. If you like this podcast, you can listen or read more about alts by subscribing at altgoesmainstream.substack.com. Welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. We're live here from Alts LA, long partnership with Kaya. Today we have Daniel Joy from La Sera on the podcast. Daniel, tell us a bit about what you do. So I joined La Sera a little bit after they started the Real Assets Program to focus on investing in infrastructure assets, mostly private investments. What brought you to La Sera? Were you in the infrastructure world beforehand? My background is in energy investing and trading. And when I moved to LA, I was looking to build the program within real assets and infrastructure was a natural fit then. So we're in an interesting time in the alts world. Obviously, we have a change in interest rates. We have a, a in different inflation regime. You know, what makes infrastructure such an interesting and compelling investment in the current time period? Well, I think the attraction to infrastructure is that it's got characteristics of the broader market returns, but with a little bit less volatility. So it tends to do better in recessions than your typical equity market. Not necessarily a recession proof, but a recession dampening effect. What are the types of things that you're investing in for people who may not be as familiar with what a pension plan would do in terms of infrastructure investing? Our infrastructure program is divided into four buckets. One is energy, which is our main bucket, energy, utilities, water, basically the infrastructure of society and life. Then the next one is telecom. So sort of the more modern digital type of infrastructure. And then there's a transport bucket, which is airports and ports. And then the last one is social, which is typically availability contracts and public-private partnerships around facilities that are government-owned often. Walk us through how the infrastructure portfolio fits into the broader asset allocation strategy within a pension plan. You're obviously looking for certain types of returns to give to your pensioners. How do you think about what the return spectrum looks like relative to other aspects of an alts investment portfolio. Typically on infrastructure, you're going to have lower returns, but lower risk than you would in a private equity portfolio or venture capital, which you consider higher up the risk spectrum. That's often private investments, but you can also do it through public markets. We would consider it on the lower end of the risk spectrum of private investments. And you're investing directly into infrastructure projects and on a principal basis, or are you often investing into funds that do infrastructure investing as well? We often hire managers to do the investments, but we will do co-investment deals with them. So we'll invest alongside them on certain deals that we find attractive. 
What do you look for in a manager on the infrastructure side in terms of background, in terms of strategy they have, maybe in a certain time in a cycle? How do you think about evaluating managers in the infrastructure space? So I think we really want to see people that are very thoughtful in their underwriting process and that really look at all aspects. It's very rare that an infrastructure investment will hit it out of the park. So it's a lot about downside risk mitigation, but it's making sure that their investment process is very thorough, that they've looked at all the risks, whether that's investment return risks, current market environment risks, and the governance risks. We want to make sure that they view the whole spectrum. So we dive deep into the investment process they have. We review assets they invested in, go through their investment memos, their modeling, just to make sure that they have a thorough process. What are the types of returns that you're targeting on the infrastructure side? Our structure review, which basically defines the way we invest for infrastructure, has two buckets, one which is the core bucket and one which is the non-core bucket. That core bucket is lower return to sort of 8 to 10% net, and the other non-core budget would be higher returns. What are some of those types of things that would be higher returns, but maybe more risk? If I take the example of a data center, you can buy an established data center that's already built and that has customers. That would be a core risk. But if you have a data center that needs to be developed, be built from scratch, that's more of a non-core risk. So even within the same category, you can have a core versus non-core risk with the same type of asset. You mentioned that you're investing in all these different public works projects, effectively that benefit those in society or in the surrounding area. How much are you doing investing that's locally based that benefits your constituents directly versus investing in projects in other parts of the country or world with the idea that the return expectation then benefits your pensioners as well? So our mandate is global, so we don't really have any restrictions. The main restrictions around geography are we wanted to deploy capital into stable jurisdictions, stable currencies, so to avoid too much risk again. It's a sort of a risk mitigation effect. We're really talking like Western Europe, Canada, the United States, Japan, Australia, stable jurisdictions where we've got a strong rule of law and strong currency that is not too volatile with the U.S. dollar. How big is your team focused on this if you're covering funds globally, different projects and assets globally? There's really two of us that are focusing on infrastructure right now. We are part of the broader real assets team, which is roughly a team of four. And that's basically the main people who focus on this sort of stuff. What excites you most about real assets right now in the current market environment? So real assets, it's time to see if real assets really does what it sort of says on the box. Because right now we're in a high inflation environment and real assets in most allocations are to hedge against high inflation. So a lot of what we do is when we're looking at assets, we try to find inflation indexation to uh, mitigate any risks around the inflation component rising. The focus right now is how to mitigate inflation. I understand how you'd think about this from a real money investor perspective as a pension plan. Sure. For those who are individuals or wealth managers in the wealth community, how should they think about approaching real assets where they may not have the capabilities or institutional knowledge that you do, the platform that you do, but should they be investing in real assets? And if so, how? I think it's a portfolio diversification aspect. And you can go to real assets or infrastructure through either public markets or private markets. The advantage of private markets is you can find assets that you couldn't find in the public markets. They could be government-owned assets, or they could be some sort of asset that's hard to access through public markets because they have an IPO'd. They need the capital, and that's how you get into the structure. And you wouldn't necessarily see those on public markets, so that component is hard for a retail investor. But you do have equivalents, like utilities, that would be considered sort of some infrastructure type of investments that you could get through the public markets. How have you thought about fund investing, where presumably you're paying fees for that, and co-investments? And I ask this question in part because, obviously, there's a fee component. But then also with pension plans, we've seen a trend of working with managers to do co-invest to blend down fees and also allocate more dollars. How have you approached the more passive investing into funds versus the co-investment? Co-investments provide 
two benefits, I'd say mainly, is one to direct the portfolio in terms of building out its diversification. I talked about the different buckets. We have different levels of allocation to each one of those buckets within infrastructure. So it can be a lot more deliberate at determining with a co-investment what bucket we want to overemphasize or rebalance it relative to what our strategy has set out. And the other advantage is often co-investments have a lower fee base, which enables us to average down the fees of our overall portfolio. When you're looking to partner with managers, are you going in saying, hey, we want to allocate a certain amount to a fund strategy, but we also want to be able to allocate X amount to co-invest strategy as well because we have this much capital to deploy? I wouldn't say we only invest with managers that do co-investments, but it's definitely a factor in our decision-making to partner with managers as if they do offer co-investments. And do you think you'll ever get to the point where you'll be doing number of principal investments directly into infrastructure projects yourself, or is it really beneficial to rely on managers for sourcing of those assets? I really can't say that's really up to our strategy review and it's decided by the board at the end of the day. Maybe at some point we will go down that road, but for now we're looking at mainly funds, co-investments, generally speaking, in sort of our bucket of tools. In your mind, what are some of the biggest risks when investing in infrastructure projects? Infrastructure is not that risky. Generally speaking, what you're trying to make sure is that your downside's not You want return of capital, probably as your first component, then you want return of capital afterwards. You're really trying to mitigate that downside. So there aren't that many huge risks and you don't see big loss ratios where you have a lot of deals that go sour and then a few that are out of the park a little bit like VC, which is what you do. It's mostly you want all those investments to be singles and doubles, not home runs. Related to this, you talk about things that benefit the public. That's what you do as a business, but that's also the types of assets you're investing in. ESG is becoming a bigger and bigger theme for investors for a variety of reasons and in a variety of ways. How much do you measure the social or environmental impact of the types of things you're investing in relative to just trying to make good investments that return capital? So ESG is definitely a component. And the way we view ESG is generally it's enhancer of returns because there's a lot of focus on the E and the S components, but the governance has always been a concern for any investor, whether it's public or private. And so that governance component can also be declined sort of to the social component and to the environmental components. If you put a price on carbon, there's a concern potentially that you might not have a great return going forward if your price of carbon a lot. And same with societal benefits in the sense where if your workers are discontent and there's a number of strikes, your company's not going to perform. So it's something we look at definitely and we look at all those aspects across the spectrum. The other interesting thing about impact investing is that I think there are a number of investments where, sure, it may make sense to measure the social or environmental impact of an investment. But the reality is for a lot of impact investments to get to institutional scale and institutional capital to be attracted to those types of investments, you just need to make good investments and return capital. Do you think that's a component of what you're doing in terms of you're just making investments in things that should be invested into? There may be an impact component to it. Say you invest in a solar farm or the land, the land underneath that or wind farms or things like that. Is that kind of just part of the mindset as well as, hey, we're investing in projects that should exist for public good? Therefore, that is impactful. I think that's a side benefit mostly. I think the way we're looking at it is it enhances return. It's complement to the overall aspect of the investment process. So ESG is just part of good underwriting, I'd say. So you mentioned good underwriting. I'm sure that's part of what keeps you up at night. What is the one thing on your mind at night when you're like, okay, we need to think about this right now in current market environment when we're investing in infrastructure assets? That's a good question. So I'd say right now, I've been thinking a lot about inflation, generally speaking, not necessarily where inflation is going, but how is the portfolio going to stand up to maybe a rising inflation environment and to make sure that we're hedging all these inflation increases. 
And that's really the component, then making sure that our investments are in areas that are stable and that aren't going to have a huge downside risk. That's the way to be the second. Follow up to that question. It seems somewhat difficult to be able to predict where inflation may be and to some extent where rates may be over the next year or two. How does that impact how you're approaching investing? And maybe is that different than prior years? So, yeah, I think the environment that we have is probably one of the most uncertain it's been in, in quite a, a long time. And I would quote Stanley Druckenmiller, who said, I think in his 40 years of investing, this is probably the most uncertain times he's ever seen. The inflation come on and we don't have a crystal ball. We basically build a portfolio that's diversified, that has an inflation hedging component. And we make sure that as we do every structure review, so we review our asset allocation, we make sure that we take into account the current environment. And we're conscious of that when we're making those sort of those allocations. What's your favorite or most interesting alternative investment? I really don't have a favorite. My focus is infrastructure, so I find that very interesting. And my background's in energy before that, so I've got a, a lot of background. That. I think they all are complementary to a portfolio. You wouldn't want to take one out. That's the benefit of having multiple alternatives. Fascinating. Daniel Joy from Listera, thanks for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alco's Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Stigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going mainstream.